Hi everyone, and welcome to the I Don't Know Show with Joe. I'm Joe, and I don't know much about the pelvic floor, but my guest Reva Prail does. Reva, thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So first of all, what in the world is a pelvic floor? The pelvic floor is the region of the body. You could think of it as the bottom of the core. So if you want to think of the core as a four-part system, the top is the diaphragm, the front are the abdominal muscles, the back are the lumbar paraspinals and back musculature, and then the bottom is the drumroll pelvic floor, which is a group of muscles that help to maintain bowel and bladder continence, and they're also responsible for sexual functioning. So pretty important muscles. Gotcha. Okay. And so that is referring to the the muscles in that part of the body. Yes. Yes. The muscles, they're also arteries, veins, nerves, there are organs in the pelvic floor. In females, there are three organs, the bladder, uterus, and the rectum. In males, there are two, just the bladder and the rectum. Um, so the pelvic floor uh, collectively refers to all of those structures that are within the region. Gotcha. And what... What function does the pelvic floor perform? So the pelvic floor, because they are surrounding the openings within the pelvic floor, so namely the urethra and the anus in both males and females, um, because the muscles surround those openings, when one contracts or tightens or turn those muscles on, then that helps to maintain bowel and bladder continence until one gets to a bathroom, sits on the toilet, or stands near a toilet or urinal, and then relaxes the muscles or releases the contraction. And then in that case, they would be urinating or defecating. Um, and the muscles are also, because they are so intim- intimately uh, connected with females with the vagina, um, with males the penis, they're responsible for healthy sexual functioning. Uh, so sometimes women, if the muscles are really, really tight, Uh, more tight than we want them to be, then they may experience pain during any form of penetration. And men may experience erectile dysfunction or pain in the penis, um, in which case pelvic floor physical therapy, which is a specialty within orthopedics, is appropriate to help address the musculoskeletal issues. Gotcha. And that's what you do, right? You're a pelvic floor physical therapist or occupational therapist. What's the difference? A uh, pelvic floor physical therapist. The specialty is one that both PTs oh, orthopedics, and orthopedics no. can go into. Um, yeah, I, I happen to be a PT by training, uh, so I'm a pelvic floor PT. And what what's involved in that? So with pelvic floor, we I always like to tell my patients that the pelvic floor is rarely dysfunctional in isolation. So as a holistic provider, we want to see what else is happening within the body Um, In general, I like to tell people we need to be thinking of everything from navel to knees. Um, And I assess the hip musculature at a patient's evaluation to determine if the muscles are tight, then we need to treat those in addition to the pelvic floor muscles. Uh, And the work also involves internal vaginal and or rectal manual therapy with double gloves um, (laughs) to help stretch any tight musculature. And I also teach my patients a lot of homework so that they can make progress on their own in between sessions. That could involve using something called either a dilator or a curved wand so that patients can simulate and kind of mimic what I do with them in sessions at home. Um, And also the benefit of a dilator set, especially ones that 
are, let's say, you know, they have six different sizes in them. So you can start with a size that's the equivalent of a finger in circumference and then work their way up to increasingly larger size items to be able to then um, engage in intercourse with their partner based on whatever their partner size is. So I always like to tell patients we want to overtrain by one size because if you shoot for the moon, you'll end up in the stars. Um, also, you'll kind of like develop the psychological confidence in yourself. Hey, if I can insert this item, which is like even larger than my partner, then chances are I'll be able to succeed. So it's also it's a form of um, graded exposure therapy um, because we're working our way up from a small sized item to then increasingly larger and larger. So the patient can then have comfortable intercourse. And so is that is that one of the most common issues is the like tightness? Yes, that's one of the most common issues. And I'm glad you brought that up because I like to think of pelvic floor dysfunction as two opposite ends of a spectrum. So on one end, what tightness would be, that's classified as overactivity of the muscle. So they're more on than we want them to be versus the opposite end of the spectrum is underactivity or weakness of the pelvic floor muscles. So when there's overactivity and tightness, then we would initiate a downtraining program to stretch, lengthen, release the tight musculature. In that case, something like dilators or the curved wand would be appropriate, hip stretches, et cetera. However, when a person has underactivity, which is the opposite problem, opposite end of the spectrum, the muscles are weak, they're oftentimes lax and loose. So think like classic case scenario is oftentimes women who are pregnant or postpartum because they've just birthed a human through the vagina, the muscles can be overstretched and weakened, in which case we'd want to strengthen or initiate an up-training program. And a lot of people have heard of uh, the term Kegels or Kegels, um, pelvic floor strengthening exercises. So Kegels are only appropriate for people with underactivity issues. And in fact, I've had patients come in with overactivity problems and they'll say to me, you know, Reva, I realized I had a problem with my pelvic floor, so I did Kegels because I just assumed I should be doing exercise for my pelvic floor muscles. But then the Kegels made my problem worse. And I was like, yeah, that's gonna happen if you have overactivity and are doing Kegels because Kegels are only going to further strengthen and tighten a system that is already too tight. With overactivity, we need to do the opposite. We need to do Zen, relaxing, releasing. Um, and also when there's tightness that's due to stress, anxiety, talking about stress management. I often, I'll teach my patients a technique called diaphragmatic breathing, which is a very calming, soothing way of performing breathing, which has an indirect um, lengthening, releasing of the pelvic floor muscles. Um, so that's a great tool. It's the foundation for any and all homework that I teach patients. It's one of the first exercises I teach them at their evaluation. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really exciting and wonderful to be able to help people with such personal and intimate aspects of their lives. Yeah. So it sounds like for, um, for the underactivity, right? So pregnancy and, and childbirth would be a major cause. So what, what would be a major cause for the overactivity? Is it anxiety or is it something else? So at the risk of sounding like I'm saying that pelvic floor dysfunction is all in your head, because it's not, I've had doctors tell my patients, take a Xanax and try to have sex or have a glass of wine. And they're like, what? No, there's actual physical pain in my muscles and this is not all in my head. So no, the pain isn't all in your head, but very often stress and anxiety and things that are in our head are manifesting 
in our pelvic floor muscles. Some people store stress and tension in the top half of their core, in their neck, in their shoulders. And then if they know that they're having an off day, they can go to massage, they can go get acupuncture, whatever it is that they do for self-care to address it, they know how to do it. However, when it comes to people's pelvic floors, people don't think that what they're experiencing is due to storing stress and tension in the pelvic floor. And the same way the top half of the core can get tight, so to the bottom half of the core can get tight. And in that case, stretching, releasing, physical therapy would be appropriate as well. Um, other major causes are anyone with a history of uh, UTIs or yeast infections, the body, the pelvic floor muscles perceive those as invaders, as foreigners that they don't want invading their space. And they respond by tightening. It's a guarding mechanism to try to prevent that which it perceives as an outsider from entering. Very often the body does too good of a job and the muscles remain on and tightened, even then in a situation where they want to be relaxing and releasing the muscles. Um, unfortunately, if God forbid a person has had a history of sexual trauma or abuse, that is similarly perceived as the pelvic floor, as far and outside, no, no, we don't want you here, and the muscles can tighten. And even just sitting, people with desk jobs who are sitting for eight hours, at a time with minimal breaks in between, we like to say as pelvic floor PTs that sitting is the new smoking. Mm. And especially people who sit with their legs crossed over each other tightly, that puts the pelvic floor in a shortened position. Um, so that is something that can also contribute to tightness. I heard uh, that standing more, all day isn't that great either though. You should like sit and stand, right? Something like that? Yes, alternating in between is, is ideal. And definitely taking standing breaks every one and a half to two hours if you do have a desk job. Um, one other thing that can contribute to pelvic floor issues or any type of abdominal or pelvic surgery, anytime there's an incision. So I'm thinking of C-section patients who have scarring or anyone who's had any abdominal surgery, females who've had hysterectomies, the body then creates scar tissue as a way to heal. And what scar tissue is, is the body laying out collagen fibers in a cobweb-like formation in an attempt to heal that which has been damaged. However, the body often does too good of a job, and then there can be too many restrictions, adhesions, things don't move as well in the body as they should. And in that case, scar mobilization is appropriate and part of treatment as well, because that can contribute to tightness in the pelvic floor. Gotcha. I've been having some uh, abdominal pain sometimes, so if I try to do ab workouts, I don't know if it's related or not, but I'm getting the feeling be. I should see a PT. <laughs> if you have no other reason to think that you have pelvic floor issues, then it likely isn't. Could it be like um, delayed onset muscle soreness after maybe overworking the abdominal muscles? No, it has nothing to do with overwork. It's very little bit of working, um, but only when I do ab workouts like if i do any other exercise that engages the core really doesn't bother me but if i do targeted ab workouts i'm in a lot of pain oh boy well i'm sorry to hear that <laughs> that sounds like it's more related to the course that i just came back from uh -huh. which is called visceral mobilization okay and visceral mobilization is basically factoring in the organs their alignment making sure that everything is where it should be and Every structure in our body is connected to each other through fascia, through this uh, connective tissue throughout our body that keeps structures compartmentalized, separated from each other. And think of it as like, um, like pantyhose that if you pull at the top, you know, all the way at the top by the hips, they'll have an effect 
down all the way to the toes even. There's a pulling. Um, so when any part of the system is restricted or adhesed or things aren't functioning properly, it can affect places elsewhere in the system. And the course that I took is all about finding restrictions and adhesions throughout the abdominal organs and viscera and then releasing tension and tightness anywhere that can be um, causing pain or dysfunction. So we worked on we worked on the liver, we worked on gallbladder, stomach, all these like amazing techniques and tools uh, to help to first assess and determine where the area of dysfunction in the body is through a technique called listening, which is basically, um, it's like a very subtle movement. It's very little pressure that the practitioner puts on the person's body. They say five grams, um, so like a nickel basically. Um, and then assessing the movement, the motility of the organs, because there's natural movement of the organs within the body at all times. Um, so I'm super excited. I was just reviewing my notes before at the gym, because I'm going to start using it tomorrow on my patients. As I'm sitting there in the course, I'm like, ooh, she needs this, and he needs that, and like, just planning what I'm going to be doing with my patients now going forward, because it's super exciting. So if it works, then I'll, uh, friends and family, I'll give you a free session <laughs> and you could let me know if it helps. Awesome. And what's, the, what's the technique called? Visceral mobilization. Visceral mobilization. Cool. Yes. One of the pioneers of visceral mobilization is a Frenchman named Jean-Pierre P- John Barnes. Wait, let me get that right. John, Jean-Pierre, yeah. Jean-Pierre. And he creates the Baral technique and the training. Jean-Pierre all cool and it's like fantastic and awesome and i can't wait to employ it nice how how frequently do you uh come across new techniques like this that that you incorporate this as passionate as i feel about it right now um i would say like once every five years wow so exciting yeah. yeah so it's pretty exciting it's pretty cool um and we'll see where it goes i already signed up for the level two class in february 2024 Amazing. So what, what kind of stuff do they, like, how do you know it's going to work? Like, do you, do you review studies? Like, like what, what's the process of, uh, um, I guess the, the course and, and and how excited you are about it? Like how, how do you know it's going to be, uh, effective? So there, they have done a lot of research on it. They have researched studies. They were quoting studies. Um, but honestly, it's it's like the anecdotal stories that they were telling over of their patients. One of the TAs, one of the instructors were like, oh, how did you get into this? And he was like, well, I had finger pain. I had like an issue with that. I went to surgeons, hand therapists, et cetera. No one could fix it. And then I went as a patient to have this treatment done. And within six visits, I felt fully better and I hadn't felt better in years. He's like, so wow. I decided to train in it and do it. I'm like, that's insane. Like anyone who has been a beneficiary of it then believes in it so much that they're like, I'm going to now do this for the rest of my life. Right. That's he was he was an administrator in high school. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty powerful stuff. And I, uh, a former coworker of mine who I view as a, as a colleague and mentor, her name is Michelle McGurk, and she practices this. She's practiced it for years. And I remember she told me about it probably eight years ago. No, almost 10 years ago. And she told me she incorporates it in all her treatment with her patients and that it works wonders. Wow. And ever since then, I was I was turned on to the idea of it. 
And then the stars aligned in a way that this course was here in Jersey. I was able to take it. And I texted her every day from the course. I'm like, I'm a believer. I get it. This is amazing. <laughs> That's Even awesome. Even seeing the responses in all of our courses, we have lab portion and we practice tech techniques on each other that we're learning. And the participants in the course were like having such strong responses to the work done. I had it done on me and I felt what it feels like. So when you realize that you kind of struck gold, you just, you keep digging. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah and sometimes, you know, anecdotes are very useful. I, I think it's, uh, I think Andrew Uberman calls it anecdata because it's still data. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You know, sometimes N of one. That. What's that? I'm going to have to quote you on that, if you permit. You can. I mean, I didn't come up with it, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes, uh, you know, N of one experimentation and, and biohacking and, and just like s trying things and seeing what works is very important, um, you know, and, and something might work for somebody that, that didn't necessarily work for other people. So, yeah. Yep. So I believe that the quote, they the statistic they quoted about Jean-Pierre was that he has seen over a quarter of a million people and his success rate is 87, 88%. Wow. That's pretty awesome. That's quite good. Yeah, and I'm sure that he was seeing, because he teaches the teachers and it's like he's just so many levels up that anyone who's coming to see him is likely complex, has seen other people, no one's been able to help them. So for him to have a success rate like that at his level is uh, it's pretty awesome and pretty telling to me. Cool. That's amazing. And you said he wasn't even a physical therapist? He was like a... He, I believe he is a phys he's a registered physical therapist by training, yes. Oh. Yeah. Who did you say was like a school teacher or something? Or like a... That was one of the TAs. Oh. The, like teaching assistants. So gotcha. they always have at any of these continuing education classes, they have TAs who come and help when we're practicing the techniques there's 40 something people in the class. It's not enough for the one lecturer to be checking the work, helping assist us. So there are at least four other people walking around the room at any given point in time, helping us refine our technique and checking that we were doing it properly. Gotcha. Very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, what other treatments do you do? Do you, do you use uh, uh, biofeedback at all? I saw that online. Yes, I do. Biofeedback is a tool where a person can be connected to a machine and then when they contract their muscles properly, the line on the screen goes up. When they relax the muscles, the line on the screen goes down. So it's it's measuring the electrical conductivity generated by the muscles when they're functioning. So it's not a direct measure of strength, but it's correlated with strength because if the muscles are able to turn on more, then it means that they're using, that, that then there's more strength being generated by the muscles. So this is especially helpful with visual learners. So patients of mine who come in and they're telling me about all the problems that they're having. And I'm telling them, well, squeeze your pelvic floor muscles. Let's try to contract the pelvic floor to help improve your continence. And they're like, what? I don't know what the heck you're talking about. I have no idea how to do that. I've never connected with this part of my body before. And I'll say to people, you know, the pelvic floor muscles are a region of your body that you don't think twice about as long as it's doing what it's supposed to do. You know, we take, take it for granted. Um, so when a person has almost a disconnect between mind and body and they're not quite sure how to connect with their pelvic floor muscles, then I find biofeedback 
especially helpful mm -hmm. because then they can see when they're using the muscles properly. So it's like, I love that whenever they have the aha moment, I like to call it, where they see on the screen when they're doing it properly and they're like, oh, that's what you mean? Like, that's how I'm supposed to squeeze and, and that's what relaxation looks like? Oh, cool. Um, so that's always like a very gratifying moment as a clinician to be present with a patient when they're making that connection because then they can strengthen those muscles properly and then experience functional carryover. So I use biofeedback in, in clinic. I also treat pediatric patients and obviously we can't do internal work on our pediatric patients. So I use biofeedback as a way to both assess and treat to make sure that they're able to turn the muscles on and off properly. And then um, just to, if they need strengthening, then that's how I would walk them through strengthening the muscles and then exercise program uh, rather than with my adult patients, I'll have my finger inserted and then guide them through contract, relax. Um, and there are also some really great home program biofeedback tools that exist. One of my favorites uh, is a device called the PeriFit and it's really cute. It turns your pelvic floor exercises into a game. So there's, so there's an app that you download and there's the sensor that they then insert. And through Bluetooth, the sensor connects with their phone and on the game, the app is a game where there, let's say there's a bird flying on the screen and then there are all these targets that they need to hit. So when they squeeze the pelvic floor muscles, the line on the screen, uh, the bird flies higher on the screen. When they have to then hit targets that are lower, they have to relax the pelvic floor muscles. So it's really cool because it turns it into a game and it's more motivating for some patients rather than just squeeze, release, squeeze, release 50 times a day, et cetera. Um, and the other really great thing about it is that the biofeedback machine, then it's very quantifiable results of their performance and it then challenges them based on the, the level that they're at of their previous performance. So it's really cool, it's really fun. Yeah. One of my postpartum clients told me that I should recommend it to all postpartum clients because uh, she found it a much more enjoyable, motivating way to do her homework. Um, and patients who appreciate that visual cueing, um, it really, it works wonders and it's really awesome. So yes, biofeedback is an awesome tool that I love employing. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I, I love biofeedback. I mean, yeah, I haven't used it for, it for this. I've used it for a bunch of things. Like when I started meditating, I got I got this thing. This is a, a Muse headband. So um, so I haven't used it in a bit, but basically it connects to my phone and uh, it like plays a soundscape, whether you're, like you're at the beach or, or whatever. And the better you are at like relaxing your mind, uh, the quieter the soundscape gets. And like if you're doing really good, then like birds will start chirping, but then the birds will distract you and then it'll start getting loud again. And it was, it was, uh, it was cool. Um, cause uh, like, you know, I, I related to that, you know, I, I don't really know if I'm doing it right or not, you know? So I like getting the, the feedback. So I know that I'm doing something, you know, <laughs> totally, totally. That's awesome. Yeah. That's another form of biofeedback. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And even like uh, whatever, measuring my sleep with the stupid ring. I say stupid because like I'm not using the feedback, but because I, I, I haven't figured that part out. But I'm getting feedback. But you have it all written down somewhere. It's recorded yeah, somewhere. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in the ether. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, so, so that's really cool. Um, is, is physical therapy usually enough on its own? Do patients, you need medication or surgery in conjunction? Like what's the norm? Yeah. Great questions. So sometimes patients arrive and they're already on certain medications. If they've been referred by a gynecologist who realizes that they have overactivity, a lot of them are given either like Valium suppositories or if they have vaginal pain, let's say they're postmenopausal, so therefore there's decreased estrogen and then there could be vaginal atrophy and thinning. So then oftentimes gynecologists will prescribe some form of estrogen. So oftentimes patients already come and they've been put on some form of medication. Um, other times they're not. Sometimes if, if they then don't progress as well or as quickly as we would like for them to in PT, then that is something that I've referred patients to doctors to get some Valium or Baclofen, whatever prescription the doctor thinks is best for them from a muscle relaxant, uh, reducing pain perspective. Um, there are some over-the-counter products that I've recommended to patients first rather than jumping to that. Uh, for example, there's... Uh, company called Boria, which produces CBD lubricant and suppositories. And I've had patients who've done really well with it because it works as a muscle relaxant. So if that then prevents them from having to go to the doctor, get a prescription, et cetera, and they can use it as needed, then, you know, good for them. Other times, unfortunately, if patients have severe overactivity and tightness, then they might need Botox injections to the pelvic floor muscles or trigger point injections, and there are different clinicians who I refer patients to if that's the case. Um, surgery is always like our last resort. It's the kind of thing that like we hope upon hope that we, conservative treatment is always better than something more invasive and more aggressive. Um, we really don't want to have to be taking people's uteruses out because their prolapse or organ descent is so bad. Um, in that case, and, prolapse, the condition that I mentioned, that's more of an underactivity or weakness issue where the organs are descending and not positioned properly in the body as they should be to the point that it's interfering with the person's activities of daily living. Um, oftentimes women will report the feeling of prolapse as like a tampon being only partially inserted or fullness or heaviness in the pelvis. Sometimes they even notice pink tissue descending through the vaginal opening. So in that case, we want to first, the first line of defense is pelvic floor muscle strengthening. Studies have shown that pelvic floor muscle strengthening programs help to reduce prolapse on average by a grade of one, and it's on a one to four grading scale. Um, if that's the case and they're well enough to go on their merry way, great. We teach them techniques for self-care and maintenance. If physical therapy isn't sufficient, then the next line of defense would be a device called a pessary which could be inserted to help support the organs from below. Um, the caveat about pessaries is that if they don't fit just right, then it's not gonna work. Um, you know, I've heard stories of patients who their pessary fell out because it was too small, or if it's too large, then it could be really uncomfortable and painful. So it has to fit right. You have to go to someone who's skilled in this and knows what they're doing. Worst comes to worst comes to worse. If neither of those two options do the trick, then there are always surgical repairs for prolapse, but we, we want to try to avoid that if possible. Um, however, I am, uh, I'm humble enough to admit that there are sometimes things that we can't 
as much as we want to be the agents to help our patients heal, there are sometimes situations that do warrant surgery. So whether it's prolapse surgery or um, I once had a patient who I referred to an incredible expert, vulvovaginal specialist. He's world-renowned, Dr. Andrew Goldstein, and he performs a surgery called vestibulectomy, which is appropriate for people who have something called neuroproliferative vestibulodynia, which means that they were born with just too many nerve endings. That is some word. It's, yeah, it took me many times to learn how to pronounce it properly and not miss any syllables. Um, but thank God I'm there. After 10 years, <laughs> I, I made it. <laughs> um, but I remember I had a patient who I was working with. She was doing all her homework. She was progressing. Her pelvic floor muscles were feeling. The tone was so much looser and so much better, but she still kept having pain. And I realized this seems atypical. This doesn't seem to fit the mold, and she isn't getting better the way she should be. And I, I, Dr. Goldstein, whenever I, he has my full trust about anything and everything. And I said, I think you should see Dr. Goldstein. He'll be able to determine if there's something else going on here. And I believe he said to my patient, I will say this to 7% of patients on their first day, but you have this condition. It is something you were just born with. There's nothing, you've done everything that you could from a PT perspective, but the only real way to fully fix it is through going through the surgery where they remove the layer of tissue with the excess nerve endings. Um, and they let me scrub in and join the surgery, which is so super cool. Um, and thank God she did great. She did really, really, it's, you know, a surgery. So there's obviously yeah. recovery after, but, um, it's, it's humbling to admit, I don't think I can give this patient what they deserve. And in cases like that, the best thing one can do for a patient is an appropriate referral to someone who can. Right. Yeah. Um, I've had patients who have a condition called endometriosis, which is a gynecological condition in which the u- uterine-like lining grows outside of the uterus instead of in the uterus in response to the hormonal changes around one cycle. And A, endometriosis is another, it's a gynecological condition that could result in pelvic floor overactivity and dysfunction. Um, But B, it's something that we can't directly fix and treat. I can't fix someone's endometriosis. I can't fix someone's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. I am able to help people, thank God, with the resulting issues in the pelvic floor in response to those conditions that have caused the tightness. But when a person has other underlying conditions, then it might be appropriate for them to have a surgery. I've had several patients who have endometriosis, uh, which is very debilitating. Approximately one in 10 women uh, have it. In fact, Mm. tonight, PBS is airing. uh, There was a documentary made about endometriosis, and it's going to be on PBS at 10 p.m., which is really exciting just to get the word out because there's so much misinformation, lack of information, people don't even realize. I believe a study years ago said that women on average are bounced around from doctor to doctor for seven years before getting an appropriate endo diagnosis because general doctors, especially it's usually pediatricians at that age, when the symptoms start developing, if they're not well versed in it, then they don't necessarily, they're like, oh, it's bad bad period cramps, like Mm. have some, let's put you on birth control. Um, that's one of the hallmarks of endometriosis is debilitating period cramps to the point that young girls, women often need to take off a day of school because their period pain is so bad or a day of work. Um, other 
signs of endometriosis signs and symptoms include uh, bowel issues, constipation, and fertility issues, which might not be apparent until later on when someone's trying to get pregnant. And it's the kind of condition that the sooner it's addressed and dealt with, the better the outcome in the long term. So the key is trying to detect it as early as possible. Uh, oftentimes, treatment involves surgery to remove the growths. They've been compared to cancer in the sense that if there's any little remnant of the growths within the body, then come the next period, they'll start growing back again in response to wow. the hormonal changes. And this so affects 10% of women? 10% of women. That's pretty significant. Is it is it all like debilitating and they need surgery or are some people's symptoms not that bad? Some are not as bad. Uh, many, many people's symptoms are bad enough that they, uh, it's almost like they just get used to chronic pain. I've heard, the way my patients describe it is like, it's almost like this either low grade pain or this expectation that there will be better days, worse days, but unclear what's going to be a good day, what's going to be a bad day. Um, and it can be, it can be extremely debilitating. I've had patients who've had to take semesters off of school for it. Um, and it also oftentimes impacts one mentally, obviously, because who wouldn't have stress, anxiety, depression over, uh, over chronic pain? It's extremely debilitating. So yeah, definitely in situations like that, I've encourage patients to get surgery because there's only so much I'll be able to do with them. I can help their pelvic floor. We can get their pelvic floor to a much better, great place, but that's not going to address the underlying gynecological condition, which needs to be addressed elsewhere. Um, an amazing book that I would recommend if anyone wants to learn more about endo is uh, Beat Endo by Dr. Iris Orbach and Dr. Amy Stein. Dr. Iris Orbach is one of the leading excision surgeons which is the gold standard for treatment of endometriosis is excision surgery, mm -hmm. so removing the lesions. And Dr. Amy Stein, who's a renowned pelvic floor therapist. They wrote a book together and it was excellent. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so uh, when you do um, pelvic floor uh, physical therapy, is it um, mostly a response to uh, an underlying issue that you're trying to resolve does anybody come for uh they don't have any issues but they want to mitigate potential future issues yeah yeah definitely uh, i've had women who if they know that they're about to become sexually active and they are petrified about the thought of having intercourse because they've never been able to put in a tampon before so that's someone who doesn't necessarily have another gynecological or underlying diagnosis that caused the pelvic floor dysfunction, that is um, also like chicken egg, what caused what? Is the anxiety, is the stress about it causing tightness? Often not, when it's a patient like that who's like, I've never been able to put in a tampon, that means it's been going on for a while. Um, and sometimes we don't know what caused it. Sometimes people are just genetically predisposed, genetically predisposed to store stress and tension in their pelvic floor and they might not have any other diagnosis at all um, but if they suspect that it will be an issue for them then definitely prophylactic treatment is can can work wonders an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure yeah who said that ben franklin i did i made up the <laughs> worth more part 
I, I modified it. I stole it probably from Ben Franklin, but the little twist on it, that's all me. Nice. Ben uh, Franklin didn't <laughs> say most of the things he said anyway. <laughs> um, also, in terms of people who have no underlying condition, but they're like, hey, I think that this will help me. Prenatal postpartum, that's a big population who get refer- who either get referred or oftentimes self-refer, which thank God the word is getting out. Thank God uh, mommy groups, women are talking about it on Facebook. It's not as taboo as it used to be. People will ask for referrals you know, publicly, which is so cool. I love it. Um, more books are being written on the matter, including two books that I've written on the matter, because we just need to get this information into people's hands so that they can know what to be on the lookout for, so that at various stages of life, should a pelvic floor muscle issue be causing their symptoms, they can, they'll know right away and they can go get help in a dignified and timely manner, yeah. rather than needlessly suffering in silence for longer than, than a day. Like, let's nip it in the bud, you know? For sure, and, and definitely send me links to those books so we can c- keep putting them in the show notes. Absolutely, will do, thank you. Um, what about uh, diet and nutrition? Do they play a role in healthy pelvic floor? Yeah, great question. Diet and nutrition definitely plays a role, especially when we're talking about the bowel bladder issues. So obviously anything that one is peeing and pooping has to do with what they're eating and drinking. So I ask my patients, I'll go over food and fluid with them, uh, discuss what healthy habits should be. So the recommended amount is eight cups of flat water per day and 25 to 30 grams of fiber per day. And I'll ask patients at the eval, I'll say, are you fiber conscious? And either they'll be like, yeah, I eat, and they'll go through like the list of whole wheat and you know the veggies and the fruits, et cetera, or they'll be like, um, and I'll be like, okay, if you're not fiber conscious, let's keep track for a week and see what you're eating, see how much fiber you're getting. Anyone who has constipation or bowel dysfunction, if they're not eating enough fiber and to have a nice amount of stool, plus drinking enough water to have the stool be the right consistency so it can then go through your gastrointestinal system and come out in a nice consistency, then that's gonna be problematic. So we need to address that, especially when I work with patients who have something called urinary frequency or urgency and incontinence. So I'll just go through each one. Frequency is when someone feels like they have to pee all the time, even oftentimes even if they've just gone to the bathroom. Sometimes they'll feel like they have to go even 10 minutes later. Urgency is where a person has the strong, sudden urge to urinate, and they feel like they don't have a long warning time. It's like, I have to go, and I have to go now. And urinary incontinence is involuntary loss of urine. So there could be a number of reasons why those things are happening. But So the pelvic floor muscles, if the muscles are weak, they could be having incontinence. But there also is the food and fluid component where what are you filling your bladder with? If a person is drinking irritants and irritants are caffeine, uh, alcohol, artificial sweeteners, carbonated beverages, things, all the things that people love. If that's what a person is primarily drinking and they're not drinking water or they're drinking minimal water, then what they're doing is they're filling their bladder with irritants, Mm. which then cause the bladder wall, which is the detrusor muscle to contract because it's being irritated. And when the bladder contracts, one then has to urinate. So I'll tell patients, especially patients who restrict, they restrict fluid because they're telling me they have all these urinary issues. They feel like they have to pee all the time. They're having incontinence. And I'll then tell them, okay, well, I want you to drink eight cups of water. And they look at me like I'm crazy because they're like, 
wait a minute, I'm already having incontinence. I feel like I have to pee all the time. And now you're telling me drink more? And I say to them, it's not about the quantity as much as it is the quality. A bladder will fill and empty healthier in a, in a healthier manner if it's being filled with larger, even if it's larger amounts of good quality of non-irritant, a.k.a. flat water, compared to a bladder that's being filled with smaller quantities of irritant. So I'll, and you know, I say to patients, they see me sitting there with my like cup of coffee as I'm like telling them, and coffee is an irritant. I'll say to them, okay, look, I get it. If you need your cup of coffee per day, you're like, how am I gonna function? I'm not gonna tell you don't drink at all, even though that's like ideally what some PTs would say, because you know, if they're not gonna listen, I don't wanna, you know, say things to them that is just gonna be discouraging to them. But what I will say is for every cup of irritant that you drink, try to drink at least two cups of flat water so that by the time it reaches your bladder, it's already diluted somewhat. Mm. So anecdotally, I've <laughs> seen this to be very helpful for patients. Um, and I would encourage, they'll say, like I went out over the weekend, I was drinking with friends and like my symptoms were worse. They know, they start to make the connections. And I'll, if patients are kind of unaware of how much they're drinking or if their drinking habits are related to their symptoms, I'll have them keep a bladder diary where I have them keep track of how much water they're drinking, how much other beverages they're drinking, and then what their urinary symptoms are like. And they'll see, I had you know two cups of coffee in the morning and then for the next hour on the hour, I had to urinate. And they keep track of how much they urinate. Not, I don't make them measure it, but I have them count Mississippi seconds. So was it a five Mississippi second urination or was it a 10 Mississippi second or was it 15? Usually in the morning when someone wakes up, that's their largest uh, bladder filling longest void but then throughout that that means that your bladder is capable of feeling that much so no you shouldn't be going every hour on the hour in small amounts and I encourage patients to try to space it out a bit um, the normal intervoiding interval or space in timing in between urinations is two and a half to three hours so there's some there's habit there's um, like a conditioned component to it of if a person feels every time they feel a tiny urge to go to the bathroom and they have to urinate, then they're teaching their bladder and training their bladder to feel fuller at smaller amounts. The bladder is elastic. It can, it's like a balloon. It can fill, it can empty. But if you're only letting it fill, you know, 100 milliliters, 100 milliliters, when it has the capacity to fill way more than that, then it's going to continue to feel full at smaller volumes. So we have to teach them how to, what I like to call, ride the wave, like think surfing, that the first urge that you feel, you want to ride it. You want to just distract yourself, um, read a book, do Sudoku, walk around the house, um, you know, do anything that will distract you from that urge and then wait until it passes and you then feel the next urge, which hopefully will be later on, ideally two and a half to three hours is the amount of time in between voids. Wow. It's amazing how much of this I'm relating to from different ways, but, uh, oh, good. yeah. You, yeah, you I have, have a whole. Years. Did you have any idea that what I do is so like practical and relevant to everyone's lives? No, I, I was sure that it was. I was sure that it was. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen anyone with an, an injury from holding it in for too long? When you injury, like, you mean? Oh, I don't know. Like, can you hurt yourself? Or in her stool. Either. So when a person habitually suppresses the urge, I see it more with. Uh, defecation, and I see it a lot with my pediatric patients. 
that for whatever reason, either they have had even sometimes just one negative experience of passing a bowel movement, whether it was painful or there was fear involved with it, they then have a negative connection with defecation. And even if they then feel the urge, they will suppress it because they'd rather not do that to themselves or do it as minimally as possible. Um, Or they have FOMO. They're playing with their friends at recess. They're watching a TV show. They just can't be bothered to pause and go to the bathroom. And then what happens is the stool sits in the rectum and it just gets harder and it will only be more difficult to pass the bowel movement later on. So a huge piece of my evals with my pediatric patients is education about the importance of, I teach them about listening to their body, about urge, being aware of the urge to either urinate or defecate and to then go to the bathroom when they feel that urge. Um, Because if they suppress it, it will only make things worse later on. And oftentimes bowel issues, especially with pediatric patients, can then contribute to urinary issues. Mm -hmm. We like to say that bowel is the driver. So if they're withholding stool, if they're not going to the bathroom, if they're not emptying regularly, if they're tightening their pelvic floor muscles inadvertently, then it usually starts and manifests first with bowel issues and then can manifest in bladder as well. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right. So what is your pelvic floor origin story? What did you want to be when you grow up, when you grew up, and how and when did it turn into this? Yeah, great question. Um, I did not know for the longest time what I wanted to do. I had a sense it would be something health sciences with people, not behind a desk doing research all day, even though ironically now I would love to get involved in some research because So many questions have come up over the years clinically. Um, But I realized towards the end of college, it must have been my junior year, that I wanted to be a PT, even though I didn't fully understand what it was. But intellectually, it was something that just made sense for what I wanted out of a job. Sciences, um, working with people. I suspected I would be challenged by the schooling, which was important to me, Um, makes a nice living, all of these things. Also, a job where there's potential to work part-time. I'd considered um, prosthetics and orthotics for a little while, and then I found out that there really is no part-time work in that field. So that was kind of a deal-breaker for me. And um, I chose PT, and every day of grad school was an affirmation that I was in the right place because I loved what I was learning. But over my field works, I hadn't really found anything that I loved. I tried pediatrics because, you know, that's just something that I know so many women go into peds. And I tried it. I was like, I'm really bored. I don't really like this. Does that make me a horrible person? No, it doesn't. But what do I want to do? And it wasn't until my last year of PT school when a close friend of mine suffered a traumatic labor and delivery with her first child. She... Um, sustained what's called a diastasis pubic symphysis, which means a separation of the two halves of the of the pelvis. And she she was like walking with a walker after she was going to PT. And she said to me one day, Reeve, it's amazing you're becoming a physical therapist because you'll be able to help women like me. And I said, uh, I will. I know hips, knees, shoulders, backs. I wouldn't know the first thing to do to help you with your postpartum issues. And she said, Reva, I'm in pelvic floor PT. It's a specialty. It's changing my life. Maybe you should just have a chat with my PT and see if this is something that strikes your fancy. And her PT, who's a guru in the field, wonderful therapist named Marilyn Friedman, 
um, Dr. Marilyn Friedman. She kindly made time out of her busy schedule to meet with me and enlighten me about the specialty. Because up until then, I thought it was just incontinence. Um, I didn't realize there was the whole overactivity piece to it. And I was like, I don't want to deal with people and urine all day. Um, and I realized there was so much more to it and that it really is such a, a powerful field that can really impact people's lives in incredible ways. And she said to me, you know, Reva, if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to check out the Herman and Wallace website. They're um, a wonderful institute that, like Baral, offers continuing education classes. She said, why don't you check out, see when they're teaching their pelvic floor 101 class and see if you could take it, you know, you'll have a better sense after one course if it's something you want to go into. And as divine providence would have it, Herman and Wallace were teaching the pelvic floor 101 class several weeks later hmm. at Hunter College where I was a student. I have not heard of them hosting that course before then or ever since then. It was like <laughs> awesome. God saying to me, Reva, my child, here, here is this gift. Please check this out and, and see if this is going to, if this works for you. And I asked the director of my program, can I, can I like help set up coffee and snacks and basically take the course for free? He's like, yeah, totally. So I got to take the course and it was taught by the two women who run the Institute, who are fantastic, incredible role models, powerhouse women. Um, and I remember calling my mother after the first day of the course and I said, mom, I found my calling. Hmm. This is what I meant to do with my life. And it was such a profound sense of clarity, especially someone who had been like, I don't know what I really wanna do in PT. Like I love school, but what do I do when it's over? And then suddenly to find and come across this specialty, which I, it just spoke to me on so many levels. Um, and and thank God I do think that I have the type of uh, an empathetic personality. It's a lot. It's very intense work. You're working with people who are dealing with so many emotional issues surrounding their symptom. It's not like my knee hurts. Help me. It's like my vagina hurts and I can't have sex. And I feel like an awful partner because I feel like I'm not satisfying my partner like there's so many layers to it so um i i love being able to help people with regards to those personal intimate aspects and to hopefully help them along their journey to to success and healing that's amazing thank you that's really incredible Thanks. um so i don't really know how to ask this but um let's say I mean, I, I feel like a lot of times I am, I mean, you know, I'm a very curious person and I, li I like learning things and, and all that. Totally. And so I, I guess I never really figured out what I wanted to, to do and I always felt like I could really do anything. Um, but uh, there are a lot of exceptions to that and one of them is like anything in the medical field. I could never ever do like this, this stuff just makes me queasy. I um, dealing with, um, any types of fluids, um, dealing with, uh, um, you know, different body parts, um, you know, and, and, and blood and, and, and piss and shit. Like I just, I don't, I wouldn't be able to do it. There's no way. So I'm always very impressed by, by people who are able to, to do that. But how, how are you able to do that? Um, like, does <laughs> it ever you. gross you out? Like, are you just naturally unsensitive to it or is it something that you develop? Like how, how do you, how are, 
did you come to be able to to do it? I am not naturally not sensitive to it. I am like a very hygienic person. I am also like in theory, I'm grossed out by all of this stuff as well. Ironically, at one point I thought about going into dentistry, but I was like, ooh, I don't want to be in people's mouths all day. Gross. <laughs> Ironic, I'm in the other orifice all day. <laughs> um, and in fact, I was so grossed out by like anything, like I queased out by any bathroom related. When I was in high school, I withheld water. I, mean, I didn't know what I was doing to myself, but I hated using the public bathrooms in my high school. I tried to not drink at all so I wouldn't have to use the bathrooms all day at all. And the joke was I'd come home after, you know, being out nine hours or whatever at school. My mom would open the door. I'd just run straight to the bathroom. That was like, she knew, like, oh, Reeves, I won't move out of the way. And I totally messed myself up because unbeknownst to me by withholding fluids, I was then causing myself constipation. Um, and not to like gross people out or anything, but I talk about this openly um, in my books and my patients. I had such awful constipation that I remember saying to my mom at one point, I can't imagine giving birth to a baby is more painful than this. I think I would on average go to the bathroom once every two weeks. And whenever I'd go, it was awful, painful, horrible. My dad would have to like snake the toilet, which is so like psychologically damaging for a teenage girl. My parents handled it as well and beautifully as they could. I remember going to my pediatrician and he suggested that I just take laxatives forever. Forever? It was basically like, here we go. Like no end in sight for this. You're going off to study abroad next year. Take Take a whole bunch of laxatives with you. And there was no talk about what I was eating or drinking. And it was so, like, mind-blowing to me. And I finally spoke to a mentor of mine about what was going on. And she was like, Reva, how much water are you drinking? And I said, what do you mean? It's not my, I'm not, I have no issues with bladder. It's bowel stuff. She's like, Reva, how much water are you drinking? I said, um, none. She said, why don't you start drinking eight cups of water for the next, a day for the next week and report back to me in a week. And, like, magic. Wow. All the plumbing started working. And I remember being blown away on two levels. One, the fact that with Aldrus, I have a lot of respect for many, many doctors, but sometimes mm-hmm. doctors miss things. Yep. And B, the fact that something conservative could be the solution rather than starting on medication, this, that. A young teenager shouldn't be requiring laxatives for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that helped open my eyes to the fact that there are other ways to solve medical problems. Um, And I think as someone, uh, subconsciously, I have no doubt that my experience with that, I think, thank God, that was the solution for me. I didn't need pelvic floor therapy or anything, even though I probably could have benefited from some colon massage, my poor little colon. Um, But I think that that got me uh, more comfortable with the concept because being able to help people with things that I knew I had suffered with so much was was very meaningful for me. Yeah. And I also, it's funny when I'm working with a patient, I'm just like, it's all, it's very clinical. It's mm-hmm. very, like I'm not thinking about where I am or what I'm doing in a person's body. And I go through gloves like water, gloves, 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 or like everything. Um, yeah, super, super, like careful. Even my patients even notice like when I'm done treating, I'll like throw the gloves out. And when I like, pick up my phone, which is where I play music from, and go to like open the door, I'll use like all the fingers that 
except my fingers that have been inserted. And some of them like make jokes about it. Like <laughs> you were double gloved. I'm like, I know, but I'm really like crazy. About this kind of thing. <laughs> so like, yeah, a part of me still is like sensitive to that, which is important, but I definitely, you know, patients will sometimes have little incontinent episodes and patients, you know, sometimes they'll be not to, get too gory but they'll sometimes be like stool when I remove my finger on the double gloves but I just you know just take it off throw it out like the less of a big deal I make about things right the less of it you know and I said patients will sometimes pass gas in the middle of a session I'll say to them it means I'm doing my job well <laughs> you know do it should you know be happening so I think making jokes not at their expense but to help lighten the mood right. and take away any shame that they might feel about it because there's nothing to be shameful of that's that's what they're here for um it's just something that i've been able to develop over the years it, co- it comes with the territory so to speak yeah <laughs> you know? um when you said that you wanted to be a dentist it made me think of a really stupid question but have you ever seen that movie teeth no what is it it's a really stupid movie about it's like a, it's like a horror <laughs> movie about a girl who has teeth growing in her vagina is that possible there's there's no way that's possible right there's no way that's possible i was just checking people (laughs) like feel that there's like something solid and hard that's preventing them from being able to have intercourse like when patients are sometimes using their dilators for homework often i'll hear i feel like i hit a wall i'm like there's no wall here there's i mean there's the vaginal canal and then there's like ultimately a stop point but where you're at now you know like two inches in that's not the end of your vaginal there's there's a long way to go here and it's tight muscle that feels like something solid Mm. to you but it's actually not wow thank you for giving me a a smart answer to that really stupid question Sure, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) what what are some common misconceptions that people have about pelvic floor health that it's only for women who are sexually active that uh, it's always a result of trauma, that is not the case, that having a glass of wine or take a Xanax and then try to have sex, that's like definitely no. (laughs) But also the misconception of if I have a problem with my pelvic floor, I should do Kegels, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Only if, gonna quiz you now. Only Only if if it's it's underactive, if it's overactive, you don't wanna do Kegels, you're already overactive. Good job. (laughs) Yes. And also the misconception that, well, if my doctor isn't sending me to PT, then I don't need it. Not necessarily. I tell women, any postpartum woman should be going to pelvic floor therapy in France. Doctors are referring them at the six-week postpartum visit. They're given a prescription for physical therapy. Here, we're not there just yet, hopefully one day soon. Uh, But in the meantime, ask your doctor for a referral or make an appointment with a PT. New York, in many states are direct access states where a patient can schedule an appointment with a PT and they don't need to get a prescription. There are places and, you need a prescription to see a PT? Oh, in, in order for insurance to cover it, you mean, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure about the, so that's legally, meaning like from a clinician standpoint, is it like illegal to treat a patient if you have not been given a prescription. What? It, it used to be the case. It used to, you used to need a prescription for physical therapy. Uh, yes. I, yes. I don't we like shifted, hearing that. We shifted away from that, <laughs> fortunately. So that's good. Like a postpartum client can just be like, hey, I have nothing 
necessarily that I think is wrong, but I kind of want a check-in after I've just birthed a baby. Um, because I, the way I describe it is if any part of your body has undergone a trauma, um, knee replacement, rotator cuff repair, obviously people are sent to physical therapy. Why should birth be any different? Yes, it's beautiful, but it's a traumatic, beautiful process. And think about what happens to both during the pregnancy with all the anatomical changes that happen and then the actual labor and delivery itself, whether it's vaginal delivery or C-section, because if it's C-section, then she has scar tissue and she's had a surgery and she needs rehab from that as well. So I encourage women to be their own biggest advocates. There's so much focus on the baby postpartum, but in order to take care of others, you also have to take care of yourself. Yeah. So treat yourself to pelvic floor therapy. <laughs> nice. Reva, we're getting towards the end of our time. I want to thank you again for joining me. Before you leave, what is one thing, if you had to choose one thing, that you want me and all of our listeners to know? Uh, one About pelvic floor therapy or about yes. anything? About pelvic floor therapy. Uh, it's that your body is beautiful. No matter what you're feeling in it, no matter what you're feeling like you're bringing to the table in your relationship at this very moment, there are so many ways to enjoy your partner other than straight up vaginal penetrative intercourse. And I hope that you are with a partner who is respectful and non-pressuring and supportive of your process. But please, please don't let any issues that you have with this very um, important part of your body that is so interconnected with one's femininity and sense of womanhood please don't let it define you or make you feel like a failure now i know <laughs> thank you <laughs> your pelvis is beautiful joe <laughs>